Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Institutions and Alternatives. Niels Christie, of the University of Oslo, is mainly known to the world as a criminologist. He began his career with a study of the concentration camps established by the Germans in Norway during World War II. Limits to Pain, his first book in English, was a meditation on punishment. And his most recent book, Crime Control as Industry, is a warning against the attitudes that have allowed the prison population in the United States to more than double in recent years. Tonight's program is about another side of Niels Christie, a relationship he has had for many years with the Camp Hill villages of Norway. These are communities modeled on the ideas of Rudolf Steiner, which welcome people with mental handicaps. Christie lived for a time in one of these communes for extraordinary people, as he calls them, and in the book he wrote about the experience, Beyond Loneliness and Institutions, he claims that they have much to teach ordinary society. His reflections on this theme make up the final program of our six-part series, Beyond Institutions, by David Cayley. Deinstitutionalization of mental patients and other people with disabilities began in the 1960s and has gone on in fits and starts ever since. In June of 1993, for example, Ontario announced that it would cut the number of psychiatric patients in institutions in half during the next decade. Later in the year, the federal government announced aid to the province of New Brunswick to speed that province's plan to move virtually all the people with mental retardation who remain in institutions into the community within five years. But what happens then? Will the extraordinary people who have been in institutions find satisfying lives in ordinary society? or only loneliness and isolation? That is one of the questions Nils Christie raises in his book Beyond Loneliness and Institutions. He argues, as his title implies, that these need not be the only alternatives. Norway's Camp Hill villages, he says, show a way that holds much richer possibilities for extraordinary people than either institutionalization or isolation in ordinary society. The Camp Hill movement it's based on the ideas of Rudolf Steiner, a German who died in 1925. He was the founder of what he called anthroposophy, a philosophy which stressed the cultivation of spiritual insight. He was an artist, an editor, and a prolific writer and lecturer. He left behind productive bodies of ideas which still animate communities of followers in art, agriculture, education, and medicine. Another set of ideas concerned the dignity and potential of the handicapped. These ideas were brought to Scotland in 1939 by a group of Viennese émigrés whose leader was Carl Koenig, and there they established the first Camp Hill village, a residential school which evolved into a residential community. We felt, Koenig wrote, that handicapped children were in a position similar to ours, they were refugees from a society which did not want to accept them as part of the community. We were political, these children social refugees. Koenig's idea spread throughout the British Isles and then throughout the world. Today there are more than 80 such communities in 18 countries. 
the first one in Canada, began in Ontario in 1986. Norway, where there are five villages, is one of the centers of the Camp Hill movement. Nils Christie began visiting these villages many years ago, at first bringing groups of his students who were studying types of social organization. As his interest and his friendship for these places grew, he became a member of the governing board. Then, during one term, he undertook to lecture to a seminar which met alternately at the university and at Widerosen, one of the villages, a seminar composed of a mixed group of university students and people with mental retardation. The topic was principles of justice. It was a very intense seminar that we had jointly. I brought my students to Widerosen, which is one of these villages, and uh, they came also with buses from Widerosen to the university, where we had uh, joint seminars here. I have to confess that sometimes it went completely wrong. I wasn't good enough. Uh, particularly, it went wrong when I fell into the trap of being an academician, sort of following the usual rules of the game, using the first two hours to explain uh, what I would do and what sort of general perspective it was and who were the big writers on this, etc., etc. Of course, that was extremely <laughs> dull, uh, and it was not the way of doing it. So when I reformulated it and went into the real problems, what would be a just solution? And took up the concrete cases of justice. Then the audience turned into a very vivid and active group. And to me, I've been lecturing in Berkeley for several terms. Uh, I was also in Berkeley just after '68, uh, where the whole place was filled with vivacity and energy and student activity. And to me, I would say that some of these lectures, where the majority of the listeners are mentally retarded, they reminded me on the Berkeley period. So much activity, so much... Uh, laughing, so much thinking, uh, so uh, much uh, creative atmosphere existed in these uh, situations that I felt really back in time. Some people would say, uh, well, is this real? Are you sure they follow you? And uh, I would then have to say, no, I'm not sure. Uh, some do, and some would still come to me when I visit Vidaros and come with a continued discussions of themes we had up in, during these seminars. But some would, of course, not be able to say anything. They might lack words, or they m might lack courage in, uh, in taking up the themes. But they were in the atmosphere, these elements from soul to soul. Why shouldn't that also be possible in a seminar on an important topic and where you feel that other people struggle with something and you feel maybe a little, you are, you are a part of that whole thing. Nils Christie eventually went to live for a time at Vida Rosen and then tried to express what he felt was the significance of the way of life in these villages in his book Beyond Loneliness and Institutions. 
One of the things that he stresses about them is that they really are villages and not therapeutic communities in disguise. People without handicaps live in the villages as co-workers, so-called, but they are in no sense a staff. In fact, Christie says, part of the culture of these communities is a deep distrust of titles, labels, and formal classifications. Institutions, very often, are transition zones, places one passes through. These are places simply to live. Those who arrive tend to stay. And the ideal is that you could be there forever. So this is very complicated, particularly for doctors to understand, because it should be a help so you could develop out of it, be cured. But you, you are not cured from being extraordinary. It is a permanent condition. It's a question of using your resources to the utmost. And this is a place you can use your resources to the utmost, but you are not improving out. It's not an ideal for the village that you should do that. If, if it should be any increase or if any movement, then it would be to create more villages and give more, more people this opportunity for life, but not, uh, not to go through it. The Norwegian villages are not at all self-sufficient, but they are, as much as possible, self-supporting, with agriculture, maintenance, and some craft production, all in the hands of the villagers. This work is jealously guarded against both labor-saving technologies and overly helpful visitors and co-workers. In the villages, the extraordinary people have their jobs. The danger with visitors and also with uh, too many people who are not extraordinary is that it's too little work left for the extraordinary. It's so easy to do things for people mm -hmm. instead of letting the people act themselves. I think it is very characteristic experience in the villages that when villagers have been away, for example, in their own families for some days, they will often come back to the village less able than they were when they left. Because they will very often, in the family where they have been born, they will have been taken care of to a much larger extent. They have not been uh, accustomed to have to do it themselves. So back in the village, it takes a day or two until they regain the independence they have uh, learned there. Life in these villages is communal. People without handicaps who live there as co-workers, for example, are entitled to a share of the common wealth rather than to payment as such. And this uncoupling of work and money is one of the features of the villages that Nils Christie finds most significant. They have, in a very interesting way, got rid of uh, the usual way of paying people. You would get uh, a bed, and you would get a house, and you would get very good food, and you would get interesting work, and you would get access to car when you need a car to go to Oslo, and you would be get some money when you needed to go on a vacation, probably in a group with extraordinary people. You could go to Greece and have three good weeks. And there, but you would never get any 
money as a part of your work. You might get money since you needed money. But money and work are completely split. I have never in my life in uh, these villages heard anybody say that I'm not doing such a fantastic job, so I need money or I need extra money or anything like that. They have, in a fascinating way, been able to put the money question out. Then you can ask, where do they get money from? And they get it to a large extent from the state. People who are severely handicapped will get some money, state money, health money, etc., etc. And they put all this money in one hat and they use as they need. But you can imagine that in this situation, people are very hesitant in using too much money because they know that all this money can be used for all sorts of good purposes in the village. And just these years, they use their money to a large extent to try to establish such villages in Eastern Europe. People from these villages and money from these villages are now involved both in creating a village in uh, Poland and one in um, Estonia and uh, also one in Russia. And there's lots of interest in the Eastern European countries for this concept. In his book Beyond Loneliness and Institutions, Nils Christie describes life in the villages as being, in some ways, more vivid and more elemental than life in ordinary society. He had already noted, in lecturing to groups that contained people with mental handicaps, that the pressure to make his ideas plain forced him to eliminate academic pretense and dig for the roots of his subject. Living at Vida Rosen intensified this impression. The closeness in your interaction uh, means that um, life becomes very fundamental in various ways. I lived there for a period, and I remember so well we got a visitor who once asked, how can you tolerate never to be alone, private? How can you be yourself? Then a very experienced co-worker said in a way that she was. And I've been really thinking on that statement. And I'm thinking on the ordinary life. How we go out of our private apartments or houses. We go into the day of work. Maybe we are out in the social life afterwards. And then we come home, and then we, in a way, open that door, shut it behind us, and say, oh, at last I can be myself. But then my question is, or and her question was, what were you when you were not at home? You were pretending to be something different. You were not yourself. But if you live with people, who are extraordinary, they do not to that extent pretend. They are themselves in most situations because partly some of them do not have the ability to pretend to be other than they are in the private. 
they are the same in all conditions. And to me, it is a very high ideal to relax from that burden of uh, pretensions and just to be yourself. And then, if you are yourself, then you don't have the need for privacy. You might have a need for being completely alone to think some thoughts continuously, but you do not have the need to be alone because you then could behave in another way than you would with other people. What did you find happened to you under those circumstances? Yeah, I felt it as a great relief in many ways to live in Vidaros. And I think it has changed my life to a large extent that uh, hopefully I'm able to take some of that experience with me also in the rest of my life. When I'm forced not to live in a village to be able to continue with my work of the university, the villages are too far away, that it is not dangerous to be very open and a bit simple in my forms. It fits me also in what I'm writing that to a large extent it is a question of being courageous. And if you observe that you have nothing to lose, it's not uh, any need for being courageous anymore. It becomes more of a natural behavior. So uh, to me, I, I find that it's a blessing what I have uh, experienced in these villages. Nils Christie's account of life at Widerosen reverses the received idea that small communities force an oppressive conformity on their members while cities are places where we can find the freedom to be ourselves. Christie doesn't deny that small places can be stifling, but he thinks the villages escape this danger because so many of their members are extraordinary. We are often, when we talk in favor of uh, our community, forgetting about the unpleasantness of the small and oppressive town where everybody had to behave in exactly correct way. Otherwise, you were an outsider. The punishments are strong and swift. So it did a great relief that lots of people have left the oppressive small towns. And I would also accept that there are dangers in the villages, that they might become oppressive. And it might be a result of my age and also outsider status that I haven't felt that sort of oppression in the villages. But on the other hand, I think there are some help in having so many extraordinary peoples in the village. You have to accept, you have to listen, and you have to accept that there are qualities in being extraordinary. And you let people, in a way, be as they are to a larger extent than usual. They have been able to preserve some of the pleasant traditions from the small town. Or maybe I know it best from up in the valleys of my country, where you often meet people who are more characters than you meet in the city. I can walk from farm to farm and here lives that character. You know him, his, and everybody do know him in his very peculiar way. He might look different, he has his own style, but he has had it for 50 years, 
and in a way purified his own style. It might be a style in clothing, in talking, in spitting. But this is as he is. And as long as he keep to his own style, then he is accepted. What would not be possible was it to copy his style or if he suddenly changed. So he's in a f way forced to remain in that role. That might be the oppressive element of it. But it gives some room for uh, being different if you are systematically different. And this is very characteristic of the village, that people are themselves to a large extent, and they are accepted as that. When I walk in the major street of uh, the capital of Norway, Oslo, then I often are reminded on people I know in the village that he, oh yes, here comes Peter, and there, here, and oh, she, she had something of Karin in her behaving. But when I am in the village, I never think of people in the streets of Oslo, or people I know. The people in the city are in a way conforming to some standards that make them to be less typified. They are more an industrial product. Standardized, look similar, greet each other similar. Uh, very uninteresting in the lack of variance, externally at least. I find more variance in the village than I find in the ordinary city life. And that is natural since we don't know each other. We have greater need for being conformists. While in Vidarosten, where people know each other, they know they have the freedom to also express themselves in their typical way. One area in which the Camp Hill villages of Norway have always exercised great vigilance is their choice of tools. They have valued forms of work that are accessible, convivial, and respectful of other beings over more instrumental goods like convenience or efficiency. They are guided in this partly by Rudolf Steiner's teachings. What Steiner called biodynamic farming, for example, discourages pesticides and artificial fertilizers and favors fingers over heavy machinery that would compress the soil. Cows are still milked and most harvest gathered by hand. Tractors, after long debate, are in sparing use. Dishwashers are banned. They have uh, the idea that uh, dishwashers are a bad thing. And this is a very conscious choice. They are bad because they kill that type of work that everybody can perform and which in addition is a good meeting place in social life. So they will not have it. And here they are in collision with the health authorities because the health authorities say that here are many people who are in need of very clean food and they are not always 
cleaning the dishes, uh, quite correct. So many people living together. And I want them to have uh, dishwashers. But the villagers insist that uh, it's more important to have social life and work than to be guaranteed uh, the highest hygienic standards. So they made a compromise on a cafeteria where visitors very often come uh, and there they have a dishwasher. But uh, this is the only case I know of. Television is an absolute ban on. This is very much discussed, but by and large it's an agreement that with television it is difficult to keep social life, uh, particularly a cultural life, during the evenings. They have meetings nearly every evening, uh, lectures, music, etc. You might easily be addicted to television. Uh, they don't have liquor freely available, and they don't have television freely available. And they look at these as two sort of problematic substances. And this is, again, been a fight because some people in the external community would say that here lives many people who are handicapped in one way or another and they should have the right to take part in the usual cultural life. And it's a sort of human right to have television for everybody. Even the Minister of Health had was asked about this and I think they concluded it was a human right. But. Uh, uh, villages uh, have just uh, refused to take this seriously. How are such decisions made within the villages? The villages have a great meeting every Tuesday night uh, where everybody attends. I would say literally everybody. And where all sorts of problems can be taken up. And um, of course to a large extent those who are most clever in talking, get the floor more often than the other. But on the other hand, it's a great interest to know what everybody really thinks. So it's very often that such questions, for example, television, will be brought up in the village assembly. And you get sort of a heated debate on it. And it is not only so that those who are, in quotation mark, ordinary people, always get their will. A classical example was the debate on the time, uh, on the, what sort of rhythm should exist in the village. The village had the rhythm of the old country time. That meant they started relatively early on work every day. They had a very long break in the middle of the day, as in the old farms, where you could go back, you had a long midday meal, uh, you had coffee, you had conversations, maybe you s had a little sleep, and you went back to work, uh, and you ended uh, in the evening, and went back again to a new meal. But this is not as it is done in uh, all modern societies. We tend to compress the work hours to something very intense, and the lunch might be, or the midday break might be half an hour, and you are back to work. So the villagers tried to modernize. But then, after a year, it was really a revolution at one of the village meetings, where the one villager after the other stood up and said that we want 
the old time back. And they gave several reasons. One, it becomes too hectic. Secondly, you say, you who made the modern time, that then we will get more time in the evening for cultural activities. But on the other hand, by the new time, by the modernization, the real result is that we don't meet each other anymore. And particularly, we, the extraordinary people, do not meet the ordinary. Yeah, how did that come about? Well, of course, the ordinary people in the villages, they reacted as we all do when we get a longer time, more spare time. That is there as a sort of temptation for the ordinary life. We tended to privatize our lives. We got off from work so early that we could go away, we could barricade ourselves. So we, in a way, by the social arrangement, created a situation of segregation. So the extraordinary people sensed it. We, we don't find anybody in this long interval after work is over. So we want back the old time. And it was decided that, uh, in this meeting, yes, you are right. We succumb to this, and now they are back to the old time. How people use and experience time has been a subject of considerable reflection for Nils Christie. He has long been in the habit, he says in his book, of asking people what they are doing when they are not working. What do we mean by what we call free time, or by the word vacation, which signifies literally emptiness or vacancy? he has come to the interesting conclusion that the concentration of time in industrial societies is, at the same time, a concentration of privilege. I've been arguing strongly for a complete reorganization of our time pattern in society. We should abolish summer vacation. We should abolish most of the Christmas vacation and the Easter vacation. We could reduce work hours to four hours a day, or three hours, if you so wish. And if you raise that question, then you can see immediately who would protest. Males would protest, lots of males. Uh, because what were their losses? They were forced back to their community to a large extent. They didn't have the usual excuses for leaving that community. Uh, who would profit? I think a lot of females would be rather satisfied if we reorganized work and took away uh, terrible vacations, brought the males back to the community, and also made it possible for them to be in work, in paid work, uh, without too great uh, problems. But uh, males, the tourist industry, uh, parts of the other industry, the lot of uh, vested interest in the arrangements, which in my country means that you can see every uh, well spring day, uh, neighborhood when Saturday Friday evening arrives, uh, the neighborhood is emptied. The able, uh, bodied people, uh, young and a bit or elder, 
people uh, gather their families, their children in the car and they move off somewhere. And who are left? Old people, sick people, deviant people, uh, extraordinary people are left in uh, this uh, neighborhood. So you, in a way, weaken neighborhoods to a large extent through these organizations. I think we should always ask ourselves who, in whose interest is it to organize life as we are doing. And from my own personal experience, I, I must say I, I think I, I don't know any stage in life where I feel more at ease and less frustrated than pressed than in the villages. And personally, I would be extremely happy if they created, if it was possible to get villages in the larger cities. I would immediately have moved to such um, type of living arrangement. But, and I've tried to get it going in Oslo, but uh, unsuccessfully. Another appealing feature of village life for Nils Christie is the way in which conflicts are expressed. As a criminologist, Christie has argued in an article called Conflicts as Property that conflicts are a community resource Expressing them invigorates and informs a community, healing its wounds and strengthening its moral sinews. But too often, Christie says in this article, conflicts are stolen by the apparatus of formal justice and moved into an institutional sphere where the community can no longer benefit. At Widerosen, he found, the community did strengthen itself in this way. They are very clever in getting conflicts open. They say it is such a dull place to live where conflicts are not brought in and exposed. Uh, so we can't live in such a place. It is a blessing in our situation that we can bring it up. So I've never been in any social system where conflicts are so openly brought up in all sorts of uh, circumstances. This is uh, partly due to an extraordinary powerful, uh, strong person who, who dares to do this. But it has then slowly become a tradition of the place. I'm, a, I'm scared when I am confronted with the conflicts like that. So uh, I um, think I would prefer to gloss over very often. But I've learned that I can't uh, get away with that when I am in the uh, villages. So I, I receive my share of the blame when things go wrong. Were you, during the, your period of living there, taken to task yourself at times? Yeah, not very strongly, but I felt that uh, I could have uh, improved on, uh, on several um, points, and I, I did, I did my, my utmost, but they are, they are also slightly, uh, maybe they are too kind towards me. What I had most trouble with of all in this place is that it's a basic demand that everybody take part in all sorts of, activity, of activities. So I, I like uh, very much to do manual work. That is, so that was no problem. And I like to take part in seminars and all that. So that was no problem. But they have all these performances they make, uh, sort of play 
and they perform for Christmas and Easter and, and all this. And there you are expected to take part, and I hate it. But the, the, here the pressure was very strong, and I'm so damned in learning by heart. It's nearly impossible to me. So uh, it was a great fiasco. And people believed that I did it intentionally, that I hadn't tried to learn these six sentences I should express. But it wasn't intentionally. And, uh, we had certain conflicts around that. They have a mechanism once a week, once a year. They have a big, uh, a big uh, celebration, and in that celebration, people are often mocked or praised. People who they think should maybe change clothes a bit more often would maybe get a gift, some nice clothes. I got some, um, what do you call it, the wings and an angel wings. Uh, with uh, some remarks that maybe I should go a bit more uh, up and be interested in uh, fundamental religious problems than I am interested in. So I, uh, I, I saw their points, but I'm afraid I haven't uh, improved. Where does power and leadership yeah. come from in the community? It's very, very complicated and very difficult really to know. It has a bit to do with age. If you have been there for a long time, you gain a lot of experience, but some people have been there forever and have no, uh, no power. Uh, it has very much to do with basic acceptance of taking all sorts of work. If you are not participating in everything you have no chance I've been there so long so I've seen several people who were supposed to be important, more important than most people People listen to, but I've, I've seen them raise and fall and their fall have nearly always been related to attempts to isolate themselves, for example becoming a sort of cultural guru because then you were not trusted. If you were not participant when the potatoes had to be picked, then it was something, it wasn't quite okay. You were not listened to with the same attention anymore. This demand of general participation is a sort of iron test. If you are able to be a decent person in the household, that is, you are up to examination every day. If you're decent in the ordinary work, it isn't easy then to manipulate the system by some, uh, as very often such sectarian leaders are, by uh, keeping quiet most of the time and then suddenly they read their message on how the sect should develop. <laughs> you have the daily banalities of life. And in these banalities, uh, you are uh, tested out. But then, uh, these, uh, in these villages, they are very active culturally. And it is not enough that you are plainly okay in your household and okay in the ordinary labor. You have also to have some interest in cultural life and interest in um, books. 
I trace this in the villages to sort of central European influence. The Steiner has several thousand of pages to read, uh, and the sort of openness for the ordinary cultural ideals. If you don't have that openness, you are also sort of outsider in this village culture. I find it's an interesting cultural life in these villages, equally interesting and often more interesting than I meet in the university. Nils Christie believes that the Camp Hill villages of Norway are much more than just refuges for those unable to live in ordinary society. In his view, they show an example to that society. They display the advantages of being in touch with perspectives outside the range of what we call normal. They highlight the problematic aspects of conceptions of time, work, and leisure that prevail in ordinary society. And finally, they raise the question of whether there may not be something perverse about the current enthusiasm for getting people who have been in institutions back into ordinary society. In Norway, as in Canada, and as in most industrialized societies, the trend has been deinstitutionalization. And that is good and bad. It is good because a lot of these institutions were very bad. But then we have gone from having extraordinary people in institution in the direction of, it is called, integrating them in the ordinary society. But this has happened so without reflection. They are moved away from the institutions where they, after all, had a base. Many had lived there for 30 years, 40 years and they had other people to interact with. Now they are moved into the ordinary society. But that move is also a move into loneliness. Because that ordinary society is not functioning. The modern society is not functioning in a way where it is easy to be integrated. Mentally retarded people are brought back to that society with extreme costs to the ordinary society. They are given a place to live, sometimes with sort of group living, four or five people living together. And then with social workers coming to see if they are okay. But then basically they are in a very lonely and sad position. And then in my book I introduced the word uh, paid friendship because these people do not have other people very often they do not have other people coming visiting them so the social worker is the only alternative and that social worker then is paid for doing it and then we see the problems in this um, concept of paid friendship the sort of internal strain in being paid and function as a sort of substitute friend. Friendship has usually something to do with, with interaction, with give and take, both ways. But here it is not that. And 
as far as I can see, a lot of uh, mentally retarded people in our societies are living a life which isn't very satisfactory. And we have auto-idealism, I think. We have created a situation with great, with severe problems for them. What do you think this ideal is? Well, the ideal is that the, the mentally retarded people should have the same rights as everybody to live in the ordinary society. But since that ordinary society is a complicated to live in for ordinary people also, yeah. it is particularly complicated for uh, mentally retarded people. And but they have the same urge for friendship, for ordinary social life as other people. And they will seek arenas for such friendship. And very often it goes wrong. Efforts at friendship miscarry, Christie believes, because the extraordinary person often cannot be understood in the edgy and hurried atmosphere of contemporary cities. A certain soil is necessary for such persons to flower, and the villages provide that soil. But in this respect, he says, the villages often run afoul of the view that people with disabilities should be integrated into ordinary society rather than form communities of their own. The debate between these two views has a long history. At the end of the last century, for example, Alexander Graham Bell carried out a vigorous and successful campaign to eliminate sign language from deaf education on the ground that it isolated deaf people in a world of their own. We should try to forget that they are deaf, Bell once said. We should teach them to forget that they are deaf. Bell's opponents argued that the deaf were a people in their own right, not deficient versions of hearing people. Bell's arguments prevailed, and for 75 years the deaf were deprived of their language. Nils Christie sees vestiges of the same idea among those who refer to the Camp Hill villages as ghettos. I'm afraid of this fight against the ghetto and the fight against letting people with the same problems be together in uh, large quantities. But I accept there is a problem. One step in the extermination of the Jews was, of course, to force them into the ghettos, to create the distance necessary to push them further. But then, the, on the other hand, then we know from several of the ghettos of the Eastern European countries and the descriptions of these ghettos. And it was a very, very fine life also, with a lot of dignified arrangements, uh, a lot of uh, interesting cultural expressions. And we see the same now with uh, people, uh, for example, in this country we have lots of people from Pakistan and from Turkey. And should they then be spread out all over the country? They would feel very unhappy. They would be forced to depend on the Norwegian social service system as a sort of alternative to the friends and people from the same country. So they are helped by being allowed 
to organize themselves in a ghetto-like uh, circumstances. And this is, of course, what the upper class in our countries always are doing. They are organizing themselves in relatively closed neighborhoods and profit from that. So is it only the underclass or those with troubles or from other ethnic backgrounds who should be denied the possibility to live relatively close together? To Nils Christie, when people of one kind are together in critical numbers, their character can be more fully expressed. The Camp Hill villages in this sense, he says, are part of a rebirth of diversity and natural variation in ways of living. Industrialization has reduced the differences on this globe. It has reduced variance when it comes to plants, to animals, but then also to the way of organizing social life. We have lost a great amount of the interesting alternatives because industrialization forces us into the same pattern. But now you can, in a way, in these villages, they are one among several examples of rebirth of alternative ways of living, which in reality are very old-fashioned ways. But then uh, it, the question raises then, could that be multiplied in the cities? And wouldn't it be better then, than attempting to assimilate handicapped people or extraordinary people in the city life as if they were ordinary, to create extraordinary places in the cities where they can live in a more satisfying way. The same problem as for mentally retarded will be there also for people who are seen as mad people. They are also extremely lonely. They cannot use the towns as ordinary people can. They would profit very highly from living in settings as they true insights have created in the villages. Nils Christie feels that the insights on which the Camp Hill movement is based have broad applications. In making places where extraordinary people can lead dignified lives, Vida Rosen and the other villages have made, he thinks, a way of life which might be better for everyone, a way of life with a depth and vividness he says he misses in his daily life in Oslo. This is the gift he discovered when lecturing to extraordinary people, the gift of finding his own thought intensified and enriched when he was forced to slow down and reduce his ideas to more fundamental terms. But this gift, he believes, can only be given in certain circumstances. To me, uh, my life in the villages and the increasing circle of uh, extraordinary people I meet has been uh, sort of awareness of how handicapped or we are, ordinary people are, when we are kept away from people who are extraordinary. They are so good teachers in many ways. So it seems to me to be important to arrange the social conditions so that most people in society have a chance to experience this. But then it must be a real experience. And the problem with integration is that then you have one extraordinary with 100 non-extraordinary. The extraordinary person cannot put his stamp 
on the interaction, this, his stamp on the situation, and will easily be ignored, forgotten. One mentally retarded person in the classroom will not change the pattern and the style of that class. He will be neutralized in a corner. But when you have several, then they, in a way, force the whole system to change. So I think it is so misplaced, this complete uh, spreading out, because then that salt <laughs> loses its power. On Ideas Tonight, the final program in our six-part series, Beyond Institutions, by David Cayley. Technical direction was by Lorne Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. A printed transcript of tonight's program is available, or of the entire six-part series. To order your copy now, call Radio Works at this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. Again, that's 1-800-363-1530. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sittler. This weekend, on Tapestry with Peter Downey, a glimpse into the lives of people coming to terms with being Jewish in the 90s. Miles Cronby, as a man in his late 20s, facing the dilemma of marrying outside his faith and two pre-teen Jewish girls reflect on and prepare for their bat mitzvahs. That's all on Tapestry with Peter Downey, Sunday afternoon, CBC Radio.